0: The Urban Broadcast Collective
1: brings together the best podcasts on cities
0: and urban life.
1: Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. You're listening to PX79 today. The views expressed in this podcast are the individual's own and do not represent the views of their employer or any other body. I'm Jess Noonan and I'm joined by my co-host Peter Jewell. Glad
2: to be here with you, Jess.
1: Today we'll be doing a deep dive on the past. Is the past our friend? And what can we learn from previous generations? To help us explore these issues, we'll be speaking with Sebastian Gertioglu from the Public Record Office Victoria. Sebastian is a professional archivist, editor, curator, and writer. He came to our attention through an article he wrote for Provenance, the Journal of Public Record Office Victoria, titled Deleting Freeways. Welcome to the show, Sebastian.
0: Thanks, Jess. And thank you, Peter.
1: And how did I go with the pronunciation on your name there?
0: You got pretty close, pretty close. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) It's not an easy, it's, it's the R.
1: The R, yeah. The the rolling R's. The rolling R's. Get me every time. (laughs) Mm. Now, can you just give us a brief, um, background on your, um, on your history? You know, how did you come to be an archivist?
0: Well, my, my, my way in was uh, after doing a doctorate. Now I didn't do it in history. A lot of people were not working in archives. you know, they, they probably start off in history or, or something like that. I came in by doing uh, um, uh, a PhD. in critical theory. and in particular, one of the theorists that I used quite a lot in my uh, work was Michelle Foucault. Um, so, uh, I'm not sure whether either of you are familiar with Michel Foucault is a French theorist from the 20th century. He, he uses a lot of archives to, um, explore, I guess, technologies of how we construct ourselves as people and as, as, and as institutions and, um, how, how we go about sort of, um, putting together what we call progress in the modern world. Um, and his, his, his way of looking at archives is something that influenced me and it, it's part of the reason I was attracted to working in an archive. I began working as an archivist uh, at the National Archives of Australia and Canberra and I was there as a graduate intern, uh, part of their graduate intake of five people in 2002 and that gave me a really broad exposure to the, what, the work that is done at a national archive, like that um and you know, I, I i liked some things more than others i guess i i um some things surprised me uh, some things were you know pretty much as i expected um from 2003 then i came back to melbourne and uh worked at public record office victoria which is the state archive of victoria and i've worked on what is mostly called the access side of the organization so it's the side of the organization that you know is interested in talking to people outside of our organisation, talking to the public, talking to various audiences. So I've done work. Um, I've worked in in the reading room. I've worked uh, assisting Aboriginal researchers uh, as an acting uh, coordinator of the Koori Records Unit that we have at um, the State Archive. I've worked on print and printed online publications. I've done curatorial work. Blog posts, articles, public talks, seminars, tours, and now I'm I'm more in the I've, I've moved into a, an area that's more about collection management, which has more to do with data, and and making the collection accessible.
2: So, Sebastian, that's quite a, quite a range. Can you can you tell us what exactly is the Public Record Office Victoria, and are there equivalents? Many of our listeners, Sebastian, are interstate and overseas. So, are there equivalents found in? other states and countries. So what is PROV?
0: Yeah, well, Public Record Office Victoria is the the state archive of Victoria. And effectively, that means it's the archive of the Victorian government. Uh, Now, by Victorian government, I mean here, the, you know, that entity that was set up initially here as it was called the Port Phillip District of the Colony of New South Wales in the 1830s. And then it became, you know, its own colony, the colony of Victoria, from the 1850s, and finally the state of Victoria, following federation in 1900. So, what we, what, what Public Record Office Victoria holds um, is the uh, is the uh, the the documentation that's been produced by that whole apparatus of government from that time on to the present. Um, PROV only came into existence in its current form in 1973. Up until that time, it had actually been uh, a part of the State Library of Victoria called the Archives Division. That was from 1955 onwards. Um, And uh, before that, it was, it was, the State Library was collecting what, what are called public, so the State Library was putting together this collection um because there was nobody else to do it Uh, and that was sort of happening from about the 1900s onwards but the collection itself dates back to the beginning of government in Victoria and so yes there are equivalents in all states and territories um with each with their own different histories and pathways and trajectories of development and likewise there's there's a national equivalent and and this is the case in most countries so wherever you find a jurisdiction of government there will tend to be an archival a collection of some sort that is there. Um, in Victoria, that that jurisdiction encompasses, you know, every government department and agency you can think of, from the well-known ones that deal with health and education, or planning and in the environment, or every government-run school. Um, and then you know, there's more obscure agencies such as, our, for instance, the, um, Save the Regent Theatre Committee, that was actually set up as a committee of of, you know a creature of the victorian government or the housing investigation and Slum abolition board in the nineteen in nineteen thirty six and 1937. and then there's all the various victorian local government bodies and all the courts from magistrates to the supreme court jurisdictions all of that stuff when it's uh, deemed to be of permanent value comes to the to public record office victoria it's not the what we have is not the only model for this kind of um for for a state you know state-run archive there are other models um, in Canada for instance they tend to have a um, their national archive which is also amalgamated with their national library tends to have a, a broader remit and its mandate is actually to go out and collect the records of society as a whole not just the records of the government that, it, that is its major you know um, that is the major contributor to its, its what it holds
1: And Sebastian, why were the um, public record offices um, across, I guess, Victoria and other states? Why were they set up initially? Was it just simply to provide a record of our history, or was there another reason why they were set up?
0: Well, it's all it's it's about it's essentially about evidence and what accountability and reliability of government. It's part of the government structure, you could say. Now, up until 1973 that role was very informally played by the archives division of the state library and um that was from 1955 as i said on earlier and before that it was uh, it was even less formal so what 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 came into being eventually i suppose through the through the course of the 20th, 20th century was a consensus that you really needed a specific uh authority in within within a jurisdiction of government be it the national archives in the federal level or the state archives you know at state level that um, not only um, was going to preserve what was going to be the the you know the ongoing collection of a of a public record uh, into the future But there was also going to set standards for record keeping across the whole public sector to advise on best practice and and to some extent you know it's it's also setting it's it's setting a legislative framework through the enabling act that you know runs what we do so we have a we have a public records act of 1973 and that gives us our mandate powers and responsibilities And and it not only does it sort of define how we as a as an organization um keep a collection that comes to us from government and how we make it available to people, but it also uh, structures the way that um, public servants, let's say, across the whole public se- sector, go about creating and documenting and accounting for themselves, the, the documentary evidence of what they're doing, of their business. Um, yeah.
2: That, that, sorry, there sorry, oh, You go, Pete. It's all very important. Uh, Jess, the, the the keeping of records. Uh, when an amazing, it's an amazing thing that it was all started so early. And I suppose that's modern government, Sebastian. The idea that there's accountability and also thinking about future generations.
0: I guess so. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's not a new idea. It's been there. A- uh, you know, responsible government has been there for a very long time. It's it's an idea that um, you know is is crucial to our democracy. But it, it, at, I guess at a certain point, the the archivists as a profession. Began to define and assert themselves, and what they what they what they saw as the responsibility of an organisation or a collection like Proven, what what it should be doing, what, how how it had a role, a bigger role, in making sure that democracy worked in an accountable way. Um, uh, the collection, of course, is not just about its original purpose and, and you know keeping people to account. Um, once the collection makes its way to us, it can be used in all sorts of ways. I mean, people. Use it for doing their family, re- you know, their family history research, um, which is, you know, got nothing to do with what the, you know, information that they're looking at was originally collected for. It was collected for other purposes. It was, you know, for for instance, shipping lists. They weren't collected with the view of, you know, having family historians come around in the 21st century and try to retrace their family connections. They were, it was collected because the government was administering, you know, people coming into the country or into this into the colony.
2: And Sebastian, that leads us to, you know, your interest in unbuilt freeways. Can, can you sort of, you know, just, just briefly describe what, how that, what that fascination was?
0: Well, I'm, my fascination, I guess, is with the unbuilt. Um, I, I, I don't know if you've ever come across these books, never built LA and never built New York. Um, there are a couple of books that go into, uh, all these major projects that were once, proposed for Los Angeles and New York but that n- never happened and um, uh, that kind of crystallised an interest that I'd had for a while after I came across a, a map at the State Archive where I work uh, which showed a way for, it, it was at a time when I were thinking of re, uh, of straightening up, straightening up the course of the Arrow River. Uh, which you know used to sort of meander its way north from the, where where the CBD is through the swamp swampy area to the west of the city and so they they wanted to cut a channel or, or, or reconfigure it so that ships could could access the the central city a bit easier and this map that I saw uh, it not only featured an extension of the CBD to the west and then down to the bay, you know, so this ex- massive extension of the CBD sort of streetscape, but it also featured um, this botanic gardens in the, that would be constructed in the West Melbourne Swamp. And it would have had this, this um, these islands set in a lake um, um, and they would have been in the shape of the British Isles, which to me seemed like an, an incredibly bizarre folly um and i'm sort of you know i wanted to find out the story behind that i have it's one that i've never really tracked down as yet but it's something that you know really inspired me to to keep my eye out for things that you know people put up as ideas at some point or another and you know for whatever reason whether it be that um the vested interests didn't didn't think it was a good thing to do or whether you know public opposition public opposition uh, was uh, very uh, vocal against it, they never happened. And, now, and on the other side, I guess cho- choosing freeways as my one of my uh, first um, forays into this area, because um, I'm currently working on a, on a number, um, I've always I've had a very long-standing interest in in how you know in public transport and and and, 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 and uh, transport solutions I guess um, from the time I, I read um, Paul Meese's book back in the uh, two decades ago about transport and it's it's something that sort of has been a bubbling interest of mine ever since.
1: I think the great Paul Mees would have taught a lot of our listeners. So um, good to hear that you're a big fan of his as well, Sebastian. Mm, yeah. Um, so you would just set the scene, I guess, leading up to that 1969 freeway plan. Was it something that they were looking at in terms of a modernist technocratic planned mm. city, or what was the what was the um, context?
0: Well, I guess that it does have elements of that. Um, it's it's big. It's visionary, and you know it's supposed. Well,
2: well, well, maybe Sebastian, you just go back a step and sure. Can you describe the sixty-nine freeway plan, and then and then talk to it, its sort of its genesis? Maybe or, you know what, as just said, the technocratic approach to city building.
0: Yeah, sure. So in nineteen sixty-nine, a fairly a very visionary plan to create a network of freeways was proposed for Melbourne. Um, It it followed a period of study that was initiated by the government. And so what what the government did was set up a a committee that involved all the major stakeholders to do with transport in the city, the railways, the roads, the the Melbourne Metropolitan Board of Works, which was the key sort of gigantic infrastructure body um, in Melbourne at the time. And what they did there, they put together data and, and did survey work and did interviews. They hired a firm that was uh, US based, I've, I've forgotten the name at the moment, but they was seen to be generally a, a firm that favored freeway construction in the US. Um, and, so yeah that the kind of the kind of uh brief that was given was uh, you know we've got a we want to uh we want to put together a plan for moving people um in 1985 and at the time it was 19 the 1960s how do we go about it and so they 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 went through the process of collecting this information and data and then um putting together um i guess models that would model what they would ex- what they what what the data was ex- telling them about um what would happen in 1985 the kind of the kind of networks you would need to to move people around and so um it was you know apparently one of the first um first such projects in 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 this um in this state that made you know thorough use of computers and computer analysis within within that kind of government study Um, and so yeah it it produced this monumental plan it was supposed to be a transport plan but it was very heavily skewed towards um, uh, freeway construction I, I, I forget the exact figures but it was like at the time, in, in, in 1969 dollars, it was 2.2 billion, which was a lot of money back then. And about, I think, 200 million was earmarked for some, some form of public transport plan. So a very minuscule part of it would have been some sort of upgrade to public transport. And it was visionary and it was, like, at scale. I mean, this thing, it would have it would have covered... Every part of the city would have eventually had a freeway running through it of some kind. And it would have created a network effect, I guess, so you could go from anywhere to anywhere
2: and Sebastian the public records I suppose detail the evolution of this this proposal what um, what did you find uh, about you know the government's evolving position on building the freeways what, what was there much in the records about that
0: there was there was quite a lot um, because each of those each of those uh, organizations that I've already mentioned those those really large post-war government um, authorities they were, they were they, they, in a way they were they're different to ministries or to departments. They were set up for particular purposes. The Melbourne and Metropolitan Board of Works was set up, you know, as a, an infrastructure body that just covered everything you can imagine to do with um, producing infrastructure in this in this uh, in the city, whether it be water or you know building metropolitan roads or whatever. Um, there was the the Housing Commission. Uh, which was likewise set up with, you know, a, a, a remit to build, you know, build large scale sort of housing. There was the railways um, and they were involved, uh, I guess, to an extent um, in that committee by contributing what they thought to be part of the solution. Um, and the Country Roads Board, which was the predecessor to the, you know, what we call Vic roads today. Um, and um, and then there was the Ministry of Transport itself. Um, so each of these bodies had, you know, there's, they not only contributed to the development of the plan, and the, on, and they they oversaw the committee that um, uh, was doing the study in the sixties. Um, they all they each had their own their own business to attend to about it. So that each of them will have. A correspondent, you know, there'll be correspondence records where they're talking amongst themselves to other, but to other public servants, to the ministers involved, and and so on. And they, you know, within those records, you also find, you know, their own plans and plan plans and and documents relating to some of these proposals that were being put forward. That the the from the from the study itself, there's there's. Um, there's the correspondence uh, to do with uh the way it it, the, it shows you the way that the the data was being collated and analyzed and, and you get these different iterations of the freeway plan for instance at intervals as 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 they try you know tweaking the numbers here and there and it spits out a different solution and they'll just move you know move these these, you know, free, so, so, freeways Sebastian, to different locations. Well, yeah. what,
2: what you're saying is not not much has changed from uh, 50 years ago. Um, the Dear Old Country Roads Board, which, which I imagine would have been one of the main agencies in this. What, what did the correspondence records relating to the F2 freeway reveal? And could you, because your article really talks about the F2 freeway proposal a lot. Can you just explain a little bit of background on that?
0: Sure. So the the F2 freeway proposal was a road that would link uh, the Hume up in the north, right through the city, through the inner northern suburbs. Um, uh, So you're talking about, you know, coming in via the Merry Creek, through um, Clifton Hill, Collingwood, down past the Yarra, over into South Yarra, Etc., and then right across to the Princess um, out, so, in so, the,
2: out in the east. So, so, for our listeners outside of Victoria, Sebastian, coming down from the main route from the north, the main interstate route yes. to Sydney, and then cutting through the inner city through a lot of heritage areas, and then li- then linking up with the the major freeway uh, highway to the west. That, that's yeah. about it?
0: Pretty much, yeah. And it, and it basically would have been a cross city. Uh, freeway it wouldn't have it wouldn't have gone into the CBD it wasn't it's not like most of the freeways that we have here which are in a way you know they're, they're servicing commuter traffic it was designed to be this you know the, the fir- one of the major free the first major freeway off the you know to uh, in this plan to get built and it would have made it made this major cross-city connection between those yeah you know, the north and and the east basically the the major arterial roads in and out of the city and because it was connecting with that with that um non-metropolitan road system it was the country roads board that took the lead on this one rather than the Melbourne Metropolitan Board of Works that there was this bizarre sort of you know division of labour back then where the MMBW would look after the city roads and the CRB would look after the country roads and that one was defined as a country road so um, yeah, it was going to it was going to basically go through all these heritage areas, particularly you know well-established areas uh, in the inner city, whether it be in the inner, inner north or the inner, you know the inner south and so forth. And um, it immediately got opposition not only from the local councils but from a lot of you know a lot of people who were living in those areas and, and various community groups. And uh, and and it sort of they started to you know that the opposition started to grow from there
2: it's interesting on that sebastian because you know, tra- road engineers want to build roads um but the planners at the time must have supported these um there must have been broad planning support for these roads as well did your correspondence come up with that as well you're sorry, You sorry, your search through the records find that as well
0: well the the the, the there was definitely there was definitely uh, when you're saying the planners uh, I, i'm not sure who you mean apart from the people say in the who are the planners if they're not the people in the MMBW or the yeah, Country
2: no, Roads no, Board? No, that's what I meant. The, the yeah. city planners yeah. and the, the Board of Works. Um, you know, there would have been broad support for this initiative. Um, tr- traffic engineers don't act on their own. I no, know they, of course not. No, they're made out to be bad, bad people. They're <laughs> not all. But, um, so it would have been a whole of government approach.
0: Yes. Yeah. Look, the, the premier and who was Balti at the time, the plan came out, um, Henry Balti, uh, and the, the, the coalition government that he led, they were for it in general. They saw it as being something that needed to be done. They, they believed that they believed that this was how you, you know, the, the future was, was freeways, that this is the way that you moved people around and you know that those major those major you know infrastructure bodies that i was talking about the country roads board the mmbw they also believe that and they also believe that the inner city was a place of decay um it was you know um you know the, a few uh, i think it was in the 50s the housing commission famously did its its uh, windscreen survey where they went and uh, uh drove around in melbourne and designated whole areas as um as slum areas to be cleared so there, there was a belief that you know this was part of a regeneration of the city and that these areas you know yes you, you know isn't unfortunate that you have to go through these areas but it was necessary and in any way it would help them out because it was there were areas that were in need of uh, rejuvenation as it was um whereas you know what they were missing was that there were people there who already Um, We're organised and and motivated and and we're going to say, no, (laughs) we don't want that. Um, We actually don't think that's a good idea.
2: We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs, details on our website.
1: This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. And so, Sebastian, obviously, um, I mean, we haven't come too far in a lot of ways in that um, community opposition to freeways and roads is still... um, you know, significant in our community, generally speaking, um, in in the F two proposal, obviously the the community opposition was ultimately successful in stopping the construction of these freeways in um, in Melbourne. I guess I'm sort of getting at well, what what does that mean? Like, how how did that change the equation between? The road building and public transport investment situation at the time. Did we then start to see significant investment in PT, or are we still in a very similar position?
0: Well, for uh, uh, this is this is not. I mean, it's not something that I'm a, an, an expert. It's, it's. I'm not an expert in public transport policy, but, um, uh, you know, in putting together this article, I did read up about you know what what some of the transport and. Um, uh urban research uh, uh, academics have been saying about the plan and i noticed it was just last year was it last year that was the 50th anniversary and they and there was there was quite a few researchers that came out and said well you know this plan, this plan from 1969 it's actually it's actually still relevant and it's basically been the blueprint for what's been happening in Melbourne ever since even though um not all of the things that are, you know, proposed in that plan have been built as as specified in that plan. You know, there's been a lot of arterial roads that have actually been built that more or less do the job that was foreseen. So, in a way, um, yeah, you, it, it's 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 there has been that reluctance to step away from that from that consensus or you know there's there's kind of a policy consensus i guess that's built up i think that's that's one of the ways that um john stone who had you had on your podcast a couple of weeks back uh how he has described it that there's been a kind of a a solidifying of this network of, of 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 um of knowledge and and about how you go about moving people in a city. And it's very hard to, it's very hard to move that. It, it sort of, it goes across party lines and it's it's more about sort of, you know, um, a kind of an embedded uh, body of opinion and, and a viewpoint that is just there and it, it's hard to shift and, you know, it can only shift it and it's certain, you know, there's certain windows of opportunity that emerge, but if you miss those upp- windows of, of opportunity, it, you just can't, you can't shift it.
2: Uh, sebastian I'm, I, I, uh, listeners might not know, but there 's the eastern freeway which was um, comes into inner city Melbourne from the eastern suburbs and it's a I think it's a beautiful freeway I love it but mm. but it's the only freeway I know that stops at a traffic light um because in the late 70s there was a lot of protests just yes, um about the eastern freeway Didn't, you know people would put car bodies on the road yeah. and all the a lot of inner city residents were very you know they protested about the opening um and there was you know I, I think there was a lot of argy-bargy but but nothing's happened since. So that, as I said, Sebastian, it's the only freeway I know that stops at a pedestrian crossing.
0: Well, it sort of, it, it does. And it doesn't stop. Cause it does stop at the, at Hoddle street, which is like, you know, major North North South arterial there in Collingwood. Um, but then most of it ends up just going straight through to um, Alexandra parade. And which is a, you know, I don't know. It's a three-lane road in each direction, so it's it, it, it's that that in effect became a de facto sort of arterial road.
2: Sebastian, the um, the movement against the freeways in the in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, brought together a, a broad coalition of inner-city residents opposing opposing it. This would have been one of the first community action groups of of this type in in Melbourne. Can you just talk to that issue?
0: Sure. Yeah. Well the um that coalition i guess was a was a coalition of people who had uh, had moved into the into those inner areas when the people who had been uh, working at the in the manufacturing industries that were starting to vacate the inner city had moved out. So what you get is people who are professionals, uh, often academics working at the nearby university, um, but then also other people who were attracted to the I guess you could say the lifestyle and the aesthetics of the place. So, you know people who are creatives, you could say. Um, who else? I mean, people who are activists in some sort of sense, um, attracted to the low rents and and, and, and and you know, interested in the kind of lifestyle that you could have there. And that, that that sort of coalition comes through in the records that I was looking at, not only, say, the Ministry of Transport records, uh, which is sort of documenting the story from the government side as the government tries to manage, you know, the, the task of selling this um, these proposals to um, to people in that area, um, in particular, you know, the F two, but also the cross city freeway that would have gone from the end of the eastern freeway across the city uh, to the west somewhere. Um, then on the other side, there's the the records of say the Carlton Association, and there, the Carlton Association was this group that was quite a well connected group. They were very influential. They were often academics. They were, they they had you know. Lots of information and connections, and they could, you know, they were they were very organised and able to put their case and um, to to the you know both the the Victorian government and the Melbourne local city uh, council and other councils in the you know that were in that in that inner area. And, and I
2: even... think I think Sebastian, your article points that out that the objectors were very articulate and yes. could make plausible um, rebuttals to you know the the government agencies um that's that, right. that fair yep
0: now go on yeah i mean though they, they, they were in some cases there were people that had you know the capacity to put together um uh, documents that that put forward cogent counter proposals that within in a very informed way and uh, um that could challenge the you know the the technocracy i guess the the people who are presenting a particular pathway as the only way when they could actually say no well we've actually got you know done research and, and here's a here's a different way you could go if you just wanted to
1: and sebastian does looking back help us look forward what can we learn from history
0: well, from this particular episode in history that that I've I've, I've looked at, I, I guess um,
2: you know, have things changed at all, Sebastian? I mean, well, got, <laughs> you, you know, your research was fifty of of a particular period in Melbourne's history of fifty years ago. But are we still do Is this just a loop, a history I, loop? I,
0: I do I do feel that we're still, to a large extent, caught up in 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 some of the same um with some of the same issues about you know there being a particular set of in- invested interests that want to have particular outcomes and it's very hard to shift them um and on the other hand uh you know you have to have you have to have very well organized and very uh well informed and connected people to try if, if you you know you really have to organize to if you're going to to counteract that and I guess you know the last case that I can think of uh, where that may have been a case you know may have been you know an example is with when the east-west link was proposed which would have been you know creating that that missing link supposedly between the end of the eastern and and, and the telemarine.
2: Sebastian that that conflict between sort of the inner city and and different peoples and it's all about competing visions of the city and I'll stick up for the freeway builders because you've got an inner city area which is super well endowed with public transport and then you've got pretty much everyone else in the in the suburbs who are highly car dependent yeah. and there's going to be tension. there's going to be different um, different values or, or different um, you know different personal experiences so for every, you know, for every freeway that's stopped, I mean, it does affect people's ability to connect. Am I? It's all about arguments about the city future, isn't
0: it? I, I agree. I, I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm not having. I'm not trying to have a go at people that are living in the suburbs who, who are, for all, for you know, they really are dependent on, on cars for their mobility. They have to, you know, make that journey. The, the public transport options are so limited. Um, but you know part of that 50 years of history I guess is about continuing to build our city in a way that is unsustainable Uh, continuing to build uh, suburbs on the fringe where there is nothing but roads and that forces people into cars Uh, there's no attempt to um, really provide viable public transport options in those areas that connect up with where they need to go Um, so it is about competing views of the city and and i i guess um you know most governments that have come in have, have had those people that are in those areas in their minds when they're doing their their calculations on who's going to vote vote them into government and what's going to what's what what's going to keep them in government um but they, you know i i guess there must be you know the the utopian in me makes me think well there must be a way beyond this you know this kind of inner city versus outer city um there's 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 cities in europe that have gotten beyond this surely that we've 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 taken the usa as our model um but there are you know the europeans have taken a very different approach uh, to the way they have put their cities together and it seems that maybe we're just not. You know the the consensus here just hasn't hasn 't looked at that as a as a as a different way to go about it i don't know what do you think
2: yes what do, what do you think i mean i i, I think that there's a, I, I think there's a great tension at that the metropolitan area and, and for australian cities most people live in the suburbs most people rely on a car for most people it generally works um, but there's uh there is a another area where it, it doesn't work what do you think Jess
1: I think um i mean you raise a couple of good points in there Sebastian about particularly about the um the fringe areas of melbourne and you know we're continuing to build these areas as car dependent um suburbs i mean i think there's a lot of really good effort going into those areas at the moment um to try and move away from that model but there's still this um, as, you, as you said, Pete, a, a tension between uh, being able to provide the relevant transport infrastructure that we need and providing um, housing for the population that we that we have. So, yeah, it's a tricky one.
0: I think part of that part of that tension is because we still believe that we want. You know the space you know we still think that we as a society can afford a quarter acre block i mean they're not quarter acre blocks anymore but that idea of that kind of density seems to be a very you know very widely held one and who's you know it's it's affordable housing it's a it's housing that you can't really get in the city basically Mm -hmm. you're priced out in a way you know i don't know i not being an expert on you know town planning and that sort of thing i don't know to what extent people are actually getting the kind of houses that they really want or whether there's more flexibility from the part you know from the consumer end as to whether they really need to live in 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 a sprawling suburb or whether they might be uh, amenable to a, a different sort of density
2: Yes, that's a pretty big topic, but you know what? What our cities are now are mm. pre- pretty much shaped by planning policies um, post-war. So, you know, the planning uh, the, the, there is much disquiet about the outer fringe, the development on the outer fringe. I'm I'm getting less worried about it, Jess. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I think it's the traditional Australian way, and we've got so much land, Sebastian. <laughs> just and and and. Um, Oh, anyway, we better move on. What, sure. what do you? What are your thoughts about um, you know how historical re- records can be lost due to redundant technologies? Um, how do we safeguard against this?
0: Well, I think that the the best way to safeguard against it is to talk to an archivist <laughs> or to talk to a records manager, um, because that's what that's what you know that's what we um, we as a profession are partly there to do We're now very focused on the records that are digital. Um, and, uh, I know that there was, you know, there's been, fa- you know, very famous cases that are, um, that have popped up from time to time that, you know, where, where things have suddenly become think, you know, digital resources have suddenly become unusable because they've become obsolescent. Um, you know, the, for instance uh, the case of the digital doomsday book um, that was produced in the mid 80s by the bbc um, now that that was I, i'm I, you know compared to the original doomsday book which has lasted for centuries you know within within i think it was about within 15 years that digital doomsday book was no longer readable in the, in the way.
2: And that's because the technologies, the equipment, no one could get it to work anymore. Is that that right?
0: Well, yeah, it would have been the equipment. It would have been probably the way the data was stored and it might have been the applications that were used you know, the software as well. So all of those, all of those factors, the, the, the hardware, the software, the file format, all of those come into play and what might not have happened back in 1985 was that the people, and I don't really know, I don't know enough about the story, but maybe the people at the BBC didn't go and talk to their digital archivists probably cause there weren't any.
2: Ah, um, oh, Sebastian, you're pumping up the profession really well, <laughs> and, uh, and and uh, I'm just I'm just conscious, Jess. I don't know if you're a big Blade Runner fan, Jess, but in the last Blade Runner film, this is exactly what happened. There was an electrical storm, and many, many, many records got lost.
1: I think you bring up Blade Runner in pretty much every episode.
0: Hey? <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that one of the doomsday scenarios for, for yeah. you know, a data apocalypse is that yeah. if we have a, a Carrington event, like the one from the late 19th century, where there was a massive solar flare that knocked out the whole telegraph system, then it would fry, you know, if something happened like like that happened now, you, you might, you risk, you know, huge amounts of not only data but the whole electrical system just going down basically
2: exactly as shown in Blade Runner Sebastian is that
0: what is that the Blade Runner scenario
2: the the the, the, the latest one yes and uh, <laughs> ah, Jess, the, right. Jess, you set, they're going to set you some homework you've got to watch both Blade <laughs> Runner films but, but over to you Jess
1: I actually haven't watched I don't think any of them Pete so that's gonna really annoy you <laughs> but so I've there- got some time this weekend so who knows maybe I will watch one <laughs>
0: They're very cool. I mean, especially the first one, it was like a a groundbreaking piece of science fiction.
2: Yes, you've heard it from Sebastian. You better (laughs) do it. Yep,
1: all right. I'll do it.
0: (laughs) Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants who provide high-quality multidisciplinary support services across all aspects of planning, transport, economic assessment and urban design. One of Australia's leading planning-related consultants for over 30 years with offices in Melbourne and Geelong. See our website for details.
1: Now, um, yeah, Sebastian, we're just coming to the end of the interview now. Um, one other question I wanted to talk about was um, around policy, sorry, planning policy research and and how people, how our listeners and all those within Victoria, how can they use the public record office as a research tool? Is well, it could... all accessed online? How do you actually... It. it's
0: unfortunately the vast majority of the collection is not online it's not digitized the the, the figure is somewhere in the in the three percent of the total 100 kilometers of shelving capacity that we have has been digitized so the the way to cut the way to do most research is to go to our website use our catalogue online and then you know you have to do the research actually on site which is North Melbourne in the case of uh, the main part of the collection, um, but you know that's changing over time more will be digitized you know and and um, also what's changing is the data, the metadata that we have so at the moment, you know um, one of the one of the impediments to to doing research into say correspondence records relating to one of the major planning uh, agencies is that you often have to do a two-step process. You'll have to order an index and then do a very analog search through that index to find a topic. And then you then order the correspondence after having looked at that, you know, hard copy index in the reading room and you get the end of it. You end up getting the, you know, the piece of correspondence. So what, what eventually we hope to do is for more and more of our correspondence records, you know, and for all sorts of records, we'll have item level, data eventually um, especially for the really you know the things that are potentially quite useful to researchers but that's something you know, you know, we don't have right. We don't have just yet. It's it, it's something that's to come. Um, but I, I guess anywhere where you know anywhere where a government has interacted in a process, uh, in a planning process, you know, you can expect to find records that might be potentially of interest. Um, and you know, we've also got things like planning schemes and um, from various local councils. Um, we've got all sorts well, of stuff.
2: Well, Sebastian, just let's just give out listen as an example i'm doing my masters and have decided to tackle say public housing in an outer suburban area in the late 50s where you know, very briefly where should i start
0: well i mean you you could you could have a look at planning schemes for instance um if you want to see i guess what what the overall policy was for 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 building in that area um there might be if if the council was involved you might you might look at how the council uh, uh, you know records relating to the local council they might have records relating to permits um, i suppose
2: the housing commission also might be the, to- the
0: housing i was going to say the housing commission if the housing commission was involved uh in building the particular uh site you did say public housing didn't you Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the Housing Commission would definitely be the one of the agencies that you would look to and you'd go and see whether they have any um any files on that particular uh development.
2: And um we're coming to the end, but in, in the US they have Archivist Day on the first of October. Is there something similar in Oz?
0: We generally follow the International Day here in Australia, which is uh the ninth of June every year. So We've gone with the International Day um, that was put forward by the International Council on Archives, the um, peak body.
2: Yes, we're going to a party on the.
0: On <laughs> I was about to say,
1: <laughs> what do you do to celebrate?
0: Oh, we, we, we sort of, um, it, it just depends. I mean, <laughs> we, we, we try to do awareness campaigns, I guess, uh, how archives can be useful to you, to people. Yes, I think um, there's an
2: inner sanctum of archivists. They won't tell us <laughs> what they do. And, and when, when people find out you're an archivist, Sebastian, what do they ask you?
0: They ask me all sorts of questions. They often ask me, "Oh, so is everything digitised yet?" And I say, oh, "No, sorry, unfortunately, it's not." Um, and that, you know, and then then we probably move on to, you know, so what, what's actually there? Um, and people, I'm, you know, people know what a library is, but often I find that trying to get people understand what an archive is is it is much trickier it's it's a different sort of beast
1: do they assume a lot of it would be about family history
0: (laughs) well there are some people do think that there's yeah that that's our focus i think i think one of the great sort of um one of the great sort of misunderstandings is that you know somewhere sitting in in the in in our on our shelves is a file on you or a file on somebody else. No, it's that's just, the
2: police department.
0: <laughs> that's that's easier, I'm afraid. Um, so uh, no, we're generally we're people. People don't quite get that. You know, it's if you're going to do family research, for instance, you have to go to a, a lot of different sources within the archive and pull it all together yourself. There's no dossier on 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 people. It's it's part of the fun that you go out there and and pull it all together from the various bits and pieces where somebody has somehow interacted with with government and they've ended up leaving a trace of their of what they've done
1: and sebastian what words do you live by do you have a phrase or a saying
0: mm, oh gosh I, I don't i don't think i really do it'd be probably you know never say never or something like that <laughs> good words good
2: words <laughs> and, and what about refresh and relax how do you do that uh, Sebastian?
0: Uh, one of the things I really enjoy at the moment is, is music. And I play, I play guitar and bass and sing, and um, I really enjoy getting together with people to do, to, to, to make music. I haven't, I'm not in any regular performing thing at the moment, but that's something I'd like to work towards maybe in the years ahead. Um, So that's, that's my, that's my refresh and relax for sure.
1: Do you want to give us a preview? It's going to be our very first sing along.
2: So, well, Jess is um, very musical. Be careful mis- what
0: you wish for. Yeah.
2: <laughs> now, now, Sebastian, we've reached um, our podcast extra or culture corner. Um, something you've read, seen, watched, listened to, experienced lately that might interest our listeners?
0: Well, somebody I know recommended, you know, I was saying, oh, you know, I'm a bit bored of watching. You know all the stuff that's on netflix um make a recommendation and she t- said watch the bridge the original danish swedish version and so that's what I've, I've been i've been making my way through the first um series of that um i've been to copenhagen but I, I can't recall the place being as minimalist and austere as it was uh as it's depicted in that in that tv series or maybe maybe those scenes are in malmo across the other side anyway it's a it's a really it's a really fascinating um a detective series I guess it is uh, and I, I'm one of the things that I've been so impressed about the series is the, the saga character I don't know if either of you have seen the show it's, the it's
2: ch- too dark for me Sebastian is it really yeah I can't I can't watch those noir those uh-huh. um, Nord, Nordic noir things I can't I can't watch them too scary
0: well one, one of the, the central one of the central detectives the Swedish one is somebody who's got, I think she's got some form of Asperger's or something like that. And she's, she's just a fascinating character too. I've never seen somebody, you know, with that kind of, um, you know, with that, with somebody who has that Detachment? working, Detachment? working, yeah, work, but, but, but working, working in a, you know, in a normal, normal inverted commas job. Um, and, you know her the way that she sees things being such a challenge to everybody else, all of her colleagues i mean they 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 find it really you know they find her strange, but she finds them strange <laughs> and she doesn't get them and wow. so it's it, it sort of cuts both ways it's interesting that you know things that make complete sense to her make no sense to other people and vice versa and it, it's it's really interesting in that way
2: I know people like that jess, and uh, your podcast extra jess.
1: Well, I don't have any books this week, Pete, but um, I have an experience. So on the weekend, uh, we were up in Milwa, up near Rutherglen for um, a friend's wedding, which was lovely. And um, we ended up staying. We we booked accommodation very very late in the piece on a long weekend, which is never a good um, combination. <laughs> so we ended up staying at a lovely little homestay or a farm stay. I should I should call it more accurately. And it was just beautiful. It was, it was, so we were staying in the main house with um, this lovely older couple, um, both in their eighties. And um, it was really lovely. It was just like staying with your grandparents on a farm in the middle of nowhere. We had, you know, a four hour long chat over a cheese platter. We had three hour breakfasts every day. It was just beautiful. So that's my podcast. Experience. Well, Jess, you're a How very good you, mixer.
2: I've got, two, I've got two. One, uh, uh, an old family friend uh, unfortunately died and we had the funeral the other, the other day. But what struck me, Jess, is that they've wrecked the hymns. Like I, lo- I love hymns and um, I used to have to sing them a fair bit when I was at school, but they brought in these sort of kumbaya hymns that no one knew, no one could understand, and it was just awful. So... I, I, please bring back you know to traditional hymns and and the other podcast extra i've got is that sebastian you inspired me to look up my uh grandfather's uh first world war records and i checked the uh, checked the camera i don't know what it is the archive but they came up straight away i typed in his name and bang 33 pages came up wow and, and uh of his time in you know when he enlisted all the forms are there, so all the bureaucratic forms, yes, and they 're fascinating to read as well because they reflect the times uh you know when he enlisted, what you know what oath he had to do, the ship that he embarked on, um, and you can and then and then, of course, you can look up the ship what what was the ship he went on, what yeah. was the ship he came back on, when he was in France, where did he go um,
0: injuries um, that sort it, of thing
2: yeah he had to go to hospital at one stage yeah. he had to leave to italy he you know where uh, you don't know precisely where he was but um and then and then coming back to australia and you know the you know being uh, you know leaving the army and his correspondence after he left the army for certain things so and i i found it within literally a minute and I've shared it with family members, and uh, my uncle, his his son, he he knows nothing of his father's war record because he never talked about it. But here we are, Sebastian. So the marvels of archives.
0: Yeah, well, thank, you know. Thank you, thank you to you and your tribe. No worries. I'm I'm glad that you that you made that find.
2: And, and it's all there. So anyone who's who's had. A, f- a member in the the services first what first or second war they can look it up straight away but sebastian you've been a wonderful guest i've learned an awful lot yes you've learned a lot that you Definitely. must watch blade runner and <laughs> and, 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 and other things and uh, listeners you can look up um, provenance the journal that um, we will put a link in on our web page to sebastian's articles so keep keep up the good work sebastian and Um, Thank you so much for being here today. And listeners, if you like this podcast, please push the subscribe. But um, Jess, terrific doing interviews with you always. Thanks again, Sebastian. Thanks,
0: Thanks Sebastian.